Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire Humanizing the Narrative podcast. This episode is part one of two. What you'll hear is a recording of a live event. The Fireside Chat is a staple of Leadership Under Fire, Leadership Development and Human Performance resident programs. The conversation affords seasoned leaders the opportunity to candidly reflect on leadership lessons and human performance principles resulting from the many wins and losses they've experienced. In August of 2022, Leadership Under Fire senior man Jim McNamara hosted a conversation with retired FDNY Captain Kevin Burke and retired FDNY Lieutenant Michael Scotto. Both leaders spent several decades serving and leading in the FDNY. As you'll hear in this episode, the department and city look very different today compared to when they joined the FDNY. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to announce that another in-person national summit will be taking place in Annapolis, Maryland on Friday, April 21st, 2023. More details to come. Now on with this episode. Gentlemen, let's start right from the top. Can you talk to us about your backgrounds and upbringing? My name's Kevin Burke. I was born in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I guess these days you have to say I, you had a mother and father now because not everybody has a mother and father. But I had a mother and father, brother and sister. We lived in a house that we did not own. We were basically squatters in a house on Narrows Avenue in, in Bay Ridge. And what happened was is the, the deal was is that as long as we paid taxes to the city, New York City, the only person that could throw us out would be the owner of that house. If that owner ever showed up, we were out. I didn't know this until I was in my teens. My parents kept this from me, all right? So, you know, I, I, later in life, I realized, hey, I lived uh, in a vacant building, you know? My father was an iron worker, which may, meant, you know, uh, when it rained, he, he didn't get paid. When it snowed, he didn't get paid. When he was laid off, he didn't get paid. So th- these kind of things all went into my upbringing. You know, the, another thing with the house is, and I couldn't understand un- until I became older, that the outside of the house looked like a shack, but the inside of the house looked like a palace, you know? And I was always embarrassed about the, the way this house looked. But the idea was my parents were trying to keep people from thinking about, hey, you know what? Uh, I, we can take this from them. So this was on, this was on their mind their whole life. And, um, you know, and, and I really didn't realize that I was in my teen, teen years and you know, it was very uh, formative, put, put it that way. You know, I went to Catholic grammar school which was free at the time, a Lady of Angels. My parents, uh, I don't know how they did it, but they, they were able to you know, s- scrounge up $1,000 a year, sent me to Severian High School, which was one of the best high schools in Brooklyn. We lived right across the street. You know, so that's pretty much you know, my upbringing to the point where I, you know, I graduated from high school and stuff like that. So, you know. And Lieutenant? Uh, my dad was on the job. He was a fireman in a 220 engine in Brooklyn. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and uh, I was the only child growing up. 
years later, not that this is a big thing, but since you told a big story, Kev, I figure I'll jump in. Yeah, of course. Well, man. we didn't know we lived in Bay Ridge. I went to St. Anselm's. But uh, I was actually adopted when I was uh, an infant, and I have uh, I had three brothers and a sister. I only have two brothers left. One passed away a few years ago. So that was a little bit of an interesting twist. And they were from Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Interesting story there. there. But that's kind of it. I had a normal childhood, uh, Catholic schools mostly, a uh, bunch of friends. Everybody was close, and that was kind of it. You know, mom, dad, and me. Beautiful. Yeah. Transitioning to the next step, what prompted each of you to become firefighters? Well, I tell you what, my, my father had a lot to do with it. You know, it, we we're children of the '70s, and no, I guess nobody here you you guys remember. '70s was like what they called the Great Inflation. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a term now, but the reality of it was there's no jobs. You know, I got I graduated from high school in 1973. I bounced around. Uh, you know, I moved furniture in Greenwich Village, which gave me a very strong back until a tour in, uh, an overtime tour in Ladder 110. But, you know, I, I moved furniture, works eight, nine days a month. It was the best you could do. Really no future. College was out. Uh, I'll get to that, that a little later, I guess. But, you know, there, there's no opportunity. So I joined the Navy in 1976. You know, so I'm in the Navy, um, you know, working on aircraft and stuff like that. And my father says, listen, you should take this test. You know, you should take the fireman's test. And I'm like, oh, what that? Uh, you know, what? You know, I'm, I'm doing electronics. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And he goes, no, no, take the test. Come up. You know, um, I, I was lucky enough to be have a weekend off. I came up from Norfolk, Virginia, and I took the test at Brooklyn Tech. I guess you took it at Brooklyn Tech, too. Yeah. I think it was 50,000 guys took the test. 77? 77. Yeah. So uh, my father was the guy who got me. You know, started on this. I went with no, I just did it to, to, you know, just to placate him. But, you know, I, I'm, thank, thanks, Dad. I mean, the best thing I ever did, you know? Amen. Lou? Yeah, uh, for me, it was, it's, it's kind of the same thing. My dad was a flyman, like I said, in 220. I had a cousin who ended up being the captain of 226, a guy, Mickey Calderelli, and his brother, John Calderelli, was in 202 Engine. So I had a family history with the fire service, and also the other side of the family were police officers in different, you know, New York City, uh, this FBI, DEA now. And I was always drawn to that. And I was the kid that ran around the house with, you know, with my father's old boots on and the uh, a cover, a pot, you know, pot cover for the, the tiller rig. Because back then, when we were kids who go to the firehouse, everything was different. There was a wooden wheel, it was a wooden ladder. And I was just drawn to the service. I enjoyed, you know, the stories in the kitchen, which can be the most dangerous room in, in the planet sometimes. <laughs> but and I'll, we'll talk about that later on when I got lit up. But it was just the, 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 the helping, the serving, the going there was just so much fun. And I, I enjoyed myself, the stories, the fun. And I didn't really know the fire service. I thought I did until I got on the job. But at that point, when I was a kid, I was very excited about it and wanted to do it. And actually, back in the day, uh, 220 and 105 truck would go to uh, Methodist Hospital on 6th, I think it's on 6th Street, right? 6th or 7th Street down there. And around Christmas time, and they would bring presents to the kids who were stuck in the, you know, in the hospital for Christmas time. And they would put Santa Claus up in the bucket, he'd go by the window, and every now and again, you know, I'd ride on the truck as a kid going to the thing. And it was, it was exciting at that point. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I got into it that way. In fact, I remember one of the chauffeurs was this uh, gentleman. He's passed away. His name was Tony Ciro. His son just retired out of 39 truck uh, well, maybe two years ago. Looks just like his dad. Yeah, it's, it's like looking in the mirror. I was like, I saw him. I almost freaked out. I said, what's your name? He goes, Tony Ciro. I said, you had dad on the job? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, my God. And I knew him. So one of those weird connections. And I guess family are always, right? Kevin, there's always 
You, you find know, family members. I, I didn't have anybody in the job. This is see. This is yeah. This is this is good because there's two two different aspects here. I didn't know anything about the fire department. I had never been in a firehouse. You know, my father got maimed as an iron worker in '72, and. I think the reason he was pushing me in that direction is he was looking for a steady paycheck, looking for a secure job. That was his most important thing. I had gotten, you know, I, was in, I had been in the Navy for a few years. I had gotten offers to go to Saudi Arabia and work for Grumman, work on C-130s for 70000 a year. And this would have been 1980. Wow. So it was like, you know, here I am, uh, I'm 23 years old, and I mean, do I want to go to Saudi Arabia, you know, for you know, for a year at a time. And, and he said, no, 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 you're going to, you're going to do this. You know, you just do this and, you know, let's see how it works out. You know, that was the, to be a fireman, you know, we had, you know, we took the written test at Brooklyn college, the physical, the famous physical. Was that the Superman physical? Yeah. I don't know if it was the Superman physical, but it was a competitive physical and it was something that you couldn't walk in cold and do. I remember I was, I was in the Navy, and I really wasn't look, even wanting to do this, but my, my old man got me prepared for that physical. And I was swimming, you know, the na you know, naval bases. You got a golf course. You got swimming pools. You got bowling alleys. It's like the best place, you know, to do things physical. So I was swimming a couple of miles a day, and that's how I got myself up for it. And, um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, chew your ear off or anything, but, I mean, I, I, have I remember – I. They had a, my physical was scheduled during the week in the United States Navy. It wasn't letting me going anywhere. You know, I was lucky I was get able to take it on a Saturday. And the Saturday I took it was March 18th, 1977. So here I am, you know, I'm a young guy. It's, it's, I'm going back to Bay Ridge. It's, it's St. Patty's night. I get home and I said, dad, I'm, listen, I got the thing in the morning, but I'm going to go out. And he goes, so you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> you are not going anywhere. So wait a second. Everybody's, everybody's up at the bar. They're all, you know, there's no cell phones. So, you know, they're calling me at home. What are you doing? What are you doing? And so he goes, no, no, no. He, he didn't sit on me. But it, <laughs> when my father was a very easygoing guy. When he wanted to make his point, he made his point. And, and I didn't go. And the next morning I got to, to the Sumner Avenue Armory. I think it's the Sumner Avenue. And I tell you what, we started doing this physical, and there was vomit all over the place. You, this is a giant barn-like structure that you could put airplanes in, and you could smell puke all over this place because that everybody else had gone out. And, and I was like, you know, I, that day I, I'm leaving, and it's actually my first taste of, of Bed-Stuy. And, you know, I'm looking at the buildings, and I'm looking at the, you know, the, the interior of the building that used to be there is on the wall, and... I'm like, whoa, this is, uh, this is a whole different thing here. You know, this is, you know, something I, I have no idea what is, what's going to, how it's going to turn out. But that physical wound up being like uh, the best thing ever happened to me. You too, I oh, imagine, yeah. too. Well, it was alphabetical. So I didn't go to a few weeks later because I went by, you know, your, your B, right. I'm S, and went down the road. But so I was able to drink St. Patty's night just, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, that was the best thing I ever did. He kept me home. But anyway, I digress. That's fine. So now we transition again. You begin probie school. What was that like? Well, Mike was first. Yeah, I went in in February of 79. Um, we had yellow slickers and those samurai helmets yellow, and you had to, yeah, they were dirty. <laughs> and they gave it to you, bring it back Monday, Saturday morning, bring it back Monday clean. It was all black and brown from the uh, the, the burn room. And uh, so I'm in the bathtub scrubbing it and put the tape on, put your name in the front, name in the back, so they know who to yell at. And we're out there in yellow rain slickers, fire department boots. That's the only thing we were able to purchase at the time was our actual boots. 
And uh, it was six weeks from start to finish, really five weeks by the time some administrative stuff got done at the front and the end. And it was big into scaling ladders, which yeah. they don't use anymore anyway. Uh, basic engine stretching. We'd be crawling across with a two and a half inch line on a rock gravel thing. This is simulating the fire floor. I'm like, they have rocks on the fifth floors of buildings? I didn't know this. I grew up in an apartment house. I never saw one, but what do I know? And we were in basic stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, there's a picture over here. Nice, say, yeah. That's kind of what it looked like. So we would do scaling ladders a couple of times a week. This was the big thing, scaling ladders. And then we went to the smokehouse. And that was our first real experience with, you know, at the time they didn't wear masks. The uh, backup teams wore masks. The nozzle team would not. In the truck side, they really didn't use masks, you know, uh, for the most part. And you're in the smokehouse. So they give it, we had this Lieutenant Paul there now. I'm yeah, sure. Peter Paul. I mean, he was there. And he had a little stick. Engine. And he would, you know, hit you on the helmet. So he's going through the room and he's asking the guys, you know, what's your, what's your name? What's your birthday? So he asked the guy in front of me, what's your girlfriend's name? And I would choke him with wet hay, but, you know, this is our first experience. He goes, which one? And I smacked him. I said, any name, <laughs> idiot. So he wanted to be, I have more than one girlfriend. Like, who cares? So that was, it was a good experience. Like, we learned, like, wow, you have to breathe in this stuff. And he got down on your hands and knees, you caught your breath, your nose was running, your eyes were watering. It was only wet hay burning, sure. but it's it's enough for your first experience. Like, this this isn't good. This isn't fun. And uh, it was kind of like that. It went fast. Uh, our lunches, you changed out in the... In the street, basically. We didn't have, like, nowadays you'll see probie school. Um, uh, young guys will see it. They have, like, home-and-away uniforms. They've got a bag. They've got all this. We had a T-shirt that had, like, a uh, training, uh, training uh, emblem on it. Like an FD training emblem. That was it. That was the only. You had to go to Sears to buy your pants, buy your dark blue shirts. There was nothing given in uniforms. Yeah. And that's the way. They had to get your own uniform. So they said, okay, you have a couple weeks. Go purchase your dress uniforms. And that took a couple. We went to a place in Brooklyn. had just opened up. And, and oh, that's Rochester kind of. Avenue. I went on Third Avenue. It's still there. Oh, I think it's Park Coast. Oh, Coates. yeah, Park Coast. Yeah, yeah, still yeah. there. I went to the guy on Rochester and, and Atlantic. Um, old guy. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, They were new, but it was fun. But probably school was, was that. It was, you know, your hour lunches. And then somebody messed up on our particular class. Um, I went to school with uh, Charles Roberto, was in my squad. Uh, Chief Kubler, who just retired, he was in my squad. And a couple other guys. Pete Gannon, who's a battalion chief, just retired a few months back. He was also in my squad. I, I had a great squad. How I only got to lieutenant, these guys all made chiefs and stuff and captains. I don't know, but... Someone's got me in the bottom rung, I guess. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, but somebody messed up, like I was saying, and we had half-hour lunches because they didn't want to say who had committed the, the, the fault, as it were. But the guy did own up to it, and uh, we, did, we got our hour lunches back. But it was, it was quick. The coffee tasted like garbage from the water. I think it still does. It's uh, just terrible water. Did they take you to vacant buildings at all or for training? Yeah, we did go to the Bronx, to some buildings. And I hadn't been to the Bronx since I went to like, the zoo or Freedom Land, which is an old amusement closed in the, in the 60s. That was my first experience with the Bronx in years. And we would cut roofs with an axe. You know, that's how you learned how to cut a roof. It was And push down the ceilings with a hook. It was a great experience. Actually doing something physically, as we all kind of know. Yep. You could read about it and you know watch it on TV or whatever. But back then, to actually physically do it was a huge help. Because we now understood what this meant. Hold the hook upside down. Because if you held it the wrong way, and yeah. you pulled up and hook grabbed something, hook fell into the top floor. Now you had no tool. So things like that were good. But the instructors were good. Uh, they were experienced guys. They knew this stuff. They, you know, and they would, they, they would test us. So we go up to the scale line. Everyone had a chance to go, be the first guy up. So we had to raise all the scale ladders. Then you would hook on with your life belt, and everybody would lean backwards off the rung, you know, to test your ability to, uh, I guess, give you confidence. So on the way down, you had to go down, and the smallest ladder from the second floor window to the net was a short ladder. So I have the last uh, scaling ladder to bring down. So I'm lifting it. It's not moving. It's like, holy crap. Like, Come on, Scott, I'll move it. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. 
I'm 21 years old. I should be able to raise this thing. And I'm three or four times, like, it's not budging. All of a sudden, I look up, I look over, the instructor was leaning on it. He's smiling (laughs) at me. All right, take it down now. And they would just test us like that to see our abilities, to see our confidence. And it was just a lot of fun. Uh, It went quick. It was over in a heartbeat. Six weeks doesn't go that. uh, Did you feel you were ready when you completed probate school back then? For certain things, but uh, not until we got to the field and actually started experiencing, you know, what it was really like, you know, with the stress levels. Because there wasn't a lot of stress. You were scared and nervous, but there was no fear of injury or death. Now you're out in the real world. You know, as they said, this is Disneyland. You're here for six weeks and you go out to the real world. Learn what you can then learn from the guys in the fires, which, which I did. Uh, and I had great, great uh, instructors and great guys I went to work with. But it was uh, it was night and day from probie school. It wasn't like anything I thought it would be when I got out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's the same thing. Like, I, I came on the job January of '81. I got out of the Navy November of '80. Now I was supposed to be on the class uh, May of. I was supposed to be on the next class May of '79. I was. A, I think it was 1,055 on the list. Was that my SAT score? Well, I, well, anyway, January of '81. Now it's it's cold. All right, and that the picture I have over here, the guys on the scaling ladder, that uh, that was. They, WNYF says it's uh, November of 81, but if, I looked at it close after about 10 years, and I said, that's Patty Murphy uh, in the end there because he's got – it was so cold, he had a watch cap over his head, and this yellow plastic fire helmet would be, would be over that. We like, – like Mike said, yeah, you didn't get your gear, and actually, I got my bill here. They, they, they took – we had to pay for our own gear. Took it out – I think they took it out of our first paycheck. I think the first paycheck, you got great memory. I have no, horrible memory. I think they, the city kept the first paycheck. You know, I, for some reason, because we didn't get paid for a while. But, but this thing here, this bill, the Nomex coat cost $124. Now, the Carnes helmet, right? And they fitted the helmet right to our head. We got fitted probably the first week of probate school. Like, like Mike said, it was six weeks. Uh, the first week was really... You were getting fitted. You were filling out GHI forms and all that yeah, stuff. Union stuff, um, all kinds. We, in January, it was so cold, they didn't even do physical education or anything like that. We didn't do any 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 uh, any running or anything. It was just so cold. So, you know, we, we're getting fitted for helmets, getting fitted for all this, all this stuff here. But the whole thing, the whole outfit, cost $424 for everything that, that you got. And... I'll talk about this later, but they have pretty much everything. You got a work duty, uh, you know. You got you got t-shirt, work duty. You got the, your rubber boots with fifty bucks. You know, you get a, a tie, you get a clasp. There's a dress cap, t-shirt. But the one thing that's not here is shoes. You know, and I didn't I didn't think about this because this will. Yeah, and, and I want to start by going just going back a couple of steps. That the fire department is like a giant fabric. You know, like I'm talking to you before, and, and there's guys we know. Jason, there's guys he met. He works in firehouses. I used to work in. It's a giant fabric where it's all interwoven, you know. And, and I just looked at this because something I'm going to tell you later. I just looked at this. I said, there's no shoes. Of all the stuff they sold us, they didn't sell us any shoes, you know. So $424 for that stuff. Um, probably school, like Mike said, they lit fires. You stretch lines. Uh, I, I had just gotten out of the Navy, so, I mean, the whole thing about marching and discipline and dress right, dress, I, I was like, you know, as undisciplined as the Navy is, uh, Jason, uh, you know, we knew all about that, you know. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted guys uh, who wanted, you know, guys who were squad leaders, who was in the Army. So I had all Vietnam vets, you know. Uh, I was in the Navy, and I get the hell out of here, you know. So 
the march and all that stuff, the discipline, all that stuff, no problem. Uh, that was easy. You know, I'm going to myself, ah, wow, this is like, I just tripled my pay uh, of a second class petty officer and we're doing this stuff and I'm having a blast. I'm meeting, you know, they got these guys. Now you got another thing, you know, if you look at it, everybody on the list or around your list number, you know, they're all pretty much as smart as you are and as athletic as you are. You know, you, you're, you, you're all graded by, you know, by the written test and the physical. So we're all pretty much in that cross-section of guys, you know, physically fit. Like myself, I played basketball, football, you know, uh, I played um, baseball. Never was like Tony Soprano. I was never a varsity athlete. But almost every guy, you know, we're, at, we're all athletes. And not the brightest uh, people in the world, but uh, we were, you know, at least, you know, we could walk, talk. And, 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 you know, we could read and write. And we were pretty good students, if you come down to it, for that yeah, 50,000 people. And Pete Trenorm was my partner. We used to drive, and he right. ended up being like one of the commissioner's aides some years later. His son's on the job now. Right. So this, I, was the, I was the bottom rung, I'm telling you. I was the little guy in the that, total. That, that whole, our squad, that, that whole thing, you were with your squad the whole six weeks. I mean, I'm lifelong friends with all those guys, you know. Uh, you went out you went out to, uh, what, uh, lunch today with Danny Murphy and, and, and Bobby LaRocca? You know, they were all in, in my probie class. Uh, they weren't in my squad. But the guys in my squad, I was even thinking about today. I can name all the guys in the squad. Things we did, you know, the laughs we had. You know, and that, I thought it was really easy. Then, like Mike said, you get to the scaling ladder. You get to, to go up a 100-foot aerial ladder, almost perpendicular. You know, you start stretching lines and you start going into it and you're taking a little bit of a feed. No mask. They lit fires. Um, you know, I remember the gas mask in boot camp, but it was, this was, the gas mask was harder. But this was, uh, you know, this was what we were going to be doing for the, like, for the rest of our lives. And I'm like, wow, I like this. You know, uh, this is pretty good. Now, you mentioned going up to the Bronx. We went up to, uh, we took the bus up, Peter Paul, Bobby San Marco. Remember the guy? Well, I don't know if oh, he was yeah, there. San Marco. Dollar. Was there. Dollar. Every time he did dollar. something wrong. Dollar. dollar. You know? Um, actually, uh, D. Donato was a, an instructor when we were there. Really? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. But we go up to the Bronx, and we go to a vacant building, and I didn't know where the hell we were. We get off the we get off 179th Street in Deegan, and I only know this because I worked there afterwards. Uh, we stopped by 43 Engine. The guys obviously went in and told the uh, the officer and you know, you know the guys working that we we're going to be lighting fires in a building, and we went to 176 in Harrison, six story H type building, and they actually lit fires in the building. We had line, you know, line flaked out. Guys would stretch the line. Guys would open the nozzle, put things out. We'd pull ceilings, cut roofs, yeah. like like Mike was saying. And we're there at nine o'clock in the morning, and right across the street was uh, was a grammar school, you know. So there's there's a couple of girls standing there in these yellow raincoats, looking like bananas, and they're making so much fun of us, you know. There's there's ten year old kids smoking joints before they're going into school. You know, and, and, and they're, they're ridiculing the hell out of us. And I'm like, I said, what, what kind of world is this? You know, and one of the guys, Roy Rasmussen, that I went to 246 with, he goes, oh, yes. He was a cop for 10 years. He goes, I remember this place during the uh, during the blackout. They sent me up here and I had to take I had, a, I had me and another guy I had to watch a corner. And I said, well, what did you do? He goes, oh, we hid in the doorway the whole night. You know, so this is like a whole that going to 176 in Harrison, 
uh, was was an experience. And 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 I said, this is you know this is what this is all about. Uh, probate school there, they didn't teach us. They did teach us the basics, but we 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 learned enough to to know that this is really this is going to be a great job. Sure. You know, and with the camaraderie of our squad, we knew that there was going to be that fabric that I was talking about before. You know, uh, but anyway, I go on forever. Sure, you and, and you make a, a tremendous comparison with what the young guys and gals go through today in probate school. Probate school is unrecognizable to what you guys went through: the length, the, the duration, the severity. Well, I, you know, I I think the reason the reason is money. The city was broke. Uh, you got to remember. And they really didn't put a lot of uh, emphasis in training, you know, like we had to buy our own stuff, you know. They were pretty much operating on a shoestring. And I think that's the reason it was six weeks. Um, they wanted to get people out in the field. They wanted to get the overtime down. I mean, it's five years after the, after the, the layoffs, but there was still repercussions from that. So I think that's why it was six weeks. And today, if you ask me, I say probably school is way too long. Uh, I, remember, I remember a guy was doing the phys ed out there, and he goes, uh, it used to be three months, and they were going to make it six months. And he goes, oh, I'll make, uh, what do you say, I'll make robots out of these guys, you know, in six, with doing six months of physical training. I, I, you know, it's probably too much. Uh, it's probably unsustainable, by the way, f financially for the job. Job seems like it has all kinds of money now. But um, six weeks was just right, I thought. You know, and and by right the way, for me. we didn't know anything. I mean, you had an idea of what the job was about. I had no idea what this was, what was going on here, you know? I remember um, years ago when my father went. Tell me where went, to go. In the early 50s, he went to probate school, right? Yeah. He got on like 51, 52. Well, Woods they Island? They basically, no, ago, oh, oh, uh, East Side. Yeah, they used to go to um, Welfare Island, it was yes. called back in the day. Um, they went to the firehouse first, and they would go back to training. When, so they actually put them in the field with no training. And then they would send them back and forth as they had spaces available, which is kind of insane. You think about it now. You send these guys to fight fires, they have no training. Yeah. No, they just follow what the other guy tells you to do. And that, so it has morphed over the years. 18 weeks is kind of a long time, but they, there's more. it seems to me there's more to know now. With hazmat and terrorism, yeah, they added a bunch yeah, of stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and, and could be know, overkill. It's my opinion that, you know, you, you want to focus on, like, you want to keep things simple in life. You know, don't give them so much to, to learn um, when it comes to hazmat. I, I mean, there's requirements, you know, there's fit tests, all that stuff. But, you know, if you keep it just narrow, you narrow it down to the job, you know. And, boy, if you think about it, the job is a lot of stuff. You could go on forever. But you don't have to be a lieutenant to get out of probate school. All you need to be is, is be able to follow orders and safely, you know, operate with your equipment that you or your, your personal, your PPE, you know. But in my opinion, you don't count anymore anyway because I'm a fossil, you know. Okay. We'll, we'll transition again to the next step. And before we do, Lieutenant Scotto mentioned uh, Charlie Roberto. Uh, I had the – I must mention that I had the absolute pleasure and privilege to work with Charlie uh, for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, – Great guy. Good man. He was a, he was a lieutenant in, um, in 33 truck also. Yep, and we'll a, get to that. After I had Laie. That's tremendous. So when each of you completed uh, probie school, where were you assigned and what was that like? 110 Church Street at the time was headquarters downtown. So we had the executive assistant to the commissioner, Jerry O'Donnell, from 147 Truck, who was God, Jerry O'Donnell. He comes down with the order, and I got the order here. Of, of, well, this is this is an older order, but he comes down with the order of where we're assigned. 
Now, I'm coming out of the service, so you're assigned where they want you to be assigned. I had no idea about hooks or juice <laughs> or any of that stuff. I had no idea, you know? So guys are hearing where they're going. They told me 246 engine. I don't have a clue where that is. I had no idea where that is. Uh, no one told you where that was. But some of the guys that came with, on the job with, and you talk about hooks, the guys from Brooklyn who probably had hooks. Now, one of my buddies in my squad, Timmy Stackpole, God rest his soul, he was from Marine Park in Brooklyn. He played football for the, for the, uh, the Mariners, all right, a semi-pro football team under Pudgy Walsh. Pudgy Walsh was a lieutenant in 147, and Jerry O'Donnell, the executive assistant, was also a lieutenant in 147. So if anybody had a hook, it was Timmy. And Timmy used to, they used to, even when our squad, this guy was all amped up about going to fires. They called him Jobs. They called him Jobs in probie school. And Timmy went to 109 truck. So the hooks didn't work in Brooklyn. Uh, Danny Murphy went to 229 engine. Then he went to 108, rescue two. Danny's a legend. Bobby LaRocca went to 318. You know, not many guys went to really busy houses in Brooklyn. I was one of them. Uh, I didn't go to a busy. I went to a pretty much, you know, a, basically a slow company in Brooklyn. But we did a little under 3,000 runs. But we got our assignments. And I remember Louis Sarapachillo, one of the guys in my squad. They say he's going to 75 engine. And he goes nuts. He was like, yes, like this, you know. And I'm like... What is, is Louie having a seizure? What's going on here? I mean, what, 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 you know, what, what's it? What is this place? Is this place uh, heaven or whatever? So anyway, Louie's all psyched. Uh, Patty Murphy went to 43 engines. So the Bronx hooks for that order worked. But, but uh, you know, we got our orders, uh, and it was six weeks after probate school. It was, uh, you know, um, what's the word? Enlightening? I had, yeah, I had no idea. I, I see guys are happy. Guys aren't happy. I said, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, so th then we wound up going, but, you know. And Lieutenant? Uh, we went to 18 engine, myself and three other guys, and I was, I'm six foot, and I was the shortest one. And we walk into this engine company, it's a single engine in Manhattan, now it's squad 18 in the village. And they go, how, how big is this probie class? You're all over six foot, we're giants, don't guys are. And it was, it was a lot of fun there, the village was great. Uh, I went to school to Xavier, which was a few blocks away, so I knew the area a little bit. And uh, it was a lot of fun. There were young guys there. They hadn't had probies there for a while. And within the next six months, we got a bunch of probies. So there was about, I'd say, eight or nine of us within six months. So we started, we uh, put together a basketball team. We had the softball team going. Uh, we did like 25, 2,600 runs a year. It wasn't extremely busy. But back then, we would go to the Lower East Side a lot, which was called Alphabet City back yeah. in the day. And we'd go to 17 engine or 15 engine or, or uh, um, 28 engine. We'd relocate. And we would catch some work on the Lower East Side, which was nice. Mostly vacants. Uh, it was a lot of fun back then. You know, you don't know anything. And probation was only six months back then. So you're only a probie That's for right. six months. Then you get rid of the orange front piece and you put on your number. So we didn't know much. I remember one time I got detailed to a 20 truck, which is where the old medical office used to be. And it's a night tour, and it's Lieutenant Lyons working uh, in the truck, and we get sent up. We get relocated up someplace. Oh, 26 truck. <laughs> we go up to 26 truck. We're the third section because 26 is at a job. Now, this is sometime in, in 1979. I, 26 is at a job. The second section is at a job. We come up. We catch a job. The other truck comes back. They go back. We come back. We catch another job. We come back. We catch a small little job in between. One was small. Finally, 26 truck comes, truck comes back. It's 
don't know, 11.30 midnight. They're still cooking. Who's the guy that wrote the uh, cookbook? Uh, Tony? John Sanino. John Sanino. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, up yeah. there cooking. Now, I don't know anybody from anything. I know some guys in Brooklyn from my dad's, but that was it. We go back downtown. We stop over at the dispatcher's office in Central Park at the time. And we get in there because the lieutenant knew some guys there. And we're looking. All of a sudden, we see runs coming over. He goes, oh, yeah, 26 going to another job. There were six, seven jobs that night. They didn't eat dinner until like 3 in the morning. And they were still building their brick kitchen that you guys had. And this yeah. again in 79. So probing school uh, was good. And then we got to the real world. We began to see the, the real changes. So A-Team being a single engine, they had a lot of little tasks for us. We were the manpower from Marine Company, too. When High-X Foam came out a couple years later, we got High-X Foam. We were a Lorenzo ladder unit a few years later, which was a, the original high-rise nozzle, high-rise ladder back in the, in the mid-'80s. Oh, hold on. Oh, yeah, a long time ago, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and we were also the backup for Satellite One, which was in Nine Engine in Chinatown. So we had a lot of little tasks we would do beside other stuff. And it was an issue. You got to see different parts of the job because you go to Queens with the satellite. We had some fires on the uh, Jersey side. So we had the Marine Company there. We're fighting fires in Jersey in the Marine Company. You know, some weather was nice. Some was not so nice. We froze some nights because it was, it was just frigid cold. You're in the water pumping tens of thousands of gallons out of those monitors. And it was an interesting experience, you know, learning the different aspects of the job. Could you uh, describe for our listeners, especially those who were younger, what was New York City like during that time period? Like I said before, I went to Engine 246, which is like a block off Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn. And even though it was a a little under 3,000 runs we were doing, uh, every night, every night, you stretched the booster, you had L-ties, every night you had a car fire, every night you had uh, rubbish. New York City at the time, now this is a fairly decent neighborhood, you know, it's Brighton Beach going into Coney Island, and, but you still, you know, you still were doing, uh, you, you know, you weren't doing a lot of, you were doing pull boxes, but you were still, you know, doing engine work, you know. Uh, and I remember you, you were asking about the first fire. I had my first fire and my first run. So I get to the firehouse. I First of all, the day before is where I found out where the firehouse was, the address. And that was a whole operation because, I, I, you know, there's no no internet, no nothing like that. But, I, I, you know, I was asking around and I finally found it. We had the Hangstrom maps. And we had the big maps. We just drew our father Hangstrom maps. Yeah, right, that cost money, That's man. But anyway, in probing school, they told you, when you get to the firehouse, keep your mouth shut, keep your head in the sink, and you, you'll talk when they want you to talk. So I went there, and that's what I did. Fifteen minutes into the thing, we get a run. You know, I put my gear on, and like, you know, it's and um, I'm going. We had a, a decent bungalow in Brighton Beach. Uh, you know, a room, in, a room and a half of fire. I'm backing up John Linick, Pops Linick, and you know, he stretches the first length and a half or a length. I get the second one, and I'm going right along with the flow. You know, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I, we had we had our Scott 4.5s then, so I put my mask on, we pull our boots up. My mat, I might have even forgotten to do that. And we push right in. And, and you know what? And John did a great job, and I was right up his ass. And, you know, I come out, and I go, man, this is what this is. And at the time, at the time, people, that was, and that was a bungalow. It was on one of the walks. So it was about 200 feet off the street on this little narrow walkway. They had these bungalows. And uh, I come out, and there's people giving, like, shots to the, you know, to the guys. Or, you know, they give, they're offering them drinks and stuff <laughs> like that. You know, I'm like, what is this? This is like, you know, these people, yeah, this is great. So that was my first job. That was my first run. Probably didn't see another fire for, like, three weeks. But every night, 
you know, you were that one inch hose with the with the crank. You know, you were rolling it up and rolling it down. L ties all the time uh, on Black Brighton Beach Avenue. You know, in the springtime, you had um, which this was when I got to the firehouse. In the springtime, you had a lot of brush. Uh, in the fall, you had a lot of leaves. You had rubbish. And we were right on the Bell Parkway service road, so you were good for like a couple of car fires a, a tour. You know, in those days, people were burning their cars like crazy. You know, it was a way to get out of making your payments. Yeah, Model T's so, had gone up at that point. Yes, right? exactly right. Expensive. And like I said, you know, as far as the economy goes, you know, nothing was for certain. I mean, uh, in 1981, the interest rates were 18 percent. You know, uh, inflation was high. So people were dumping their cars, you know, and burning them. And this is what we did, you know. And every morning you'd blow out your nose and you'd have black shit out your nose. And this is for a slow company. So, you know, when I, when I you had to do assistant house watch when you first started. I didn't know there existed a department of radio. I, all I know is you couldn't hear the radio like you do today. You know, when you had a fire, the, the officer used to hit the uh, plexiglass with, with, yeah. with the, the handset. And you didn't hear nothing. But on watch, you had the, a department radio. And that's where I became familiar with the rest of the job. Like Mike said, you know, 20, a 26 truck, job, job, job. The voice alarm would come up and say, you know, uh, all hands, trans, trans, uh, second alarm transmitter. This is just Brooklyn. So I started listening to the radio and I started, you know, finding out, you know, where these places were. I knew Brooklyn pretty well. And when they gave the address, I knew, you know, pretty much everything was pretty much Flatbush and East New York. So I started to develop a love for listening to that radio. And trying to put the dots together of, of where they were, who were the companies and stuff like that. And I still do it today. But the first, you know, few weeks, months was a, a, definitely a learning experience. And you, I don't think I felt comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable for that whole year. I remember the first time going into Coney Island, third due. And I already had a fire. And I, you know, oh, look at me. I already had a fire. And I'm sitting in the jump seat and my leg is shaking and it can't stop shaking. And we're going all the way down Neptune Avenue into Coney Island, which is we were third due there. So we'd go there quite often. And I, that leg was shaking. And it took me a couple of months before that wouldn't happen anymore. And that was all part of the, the education, all part of the evolution, you know, of, of being on this job, you know. So, Lieutenant? Uh, my first fly, I'll never forget it. I'm on the back step because back then we rode the back step. And like I had said earlier, the inside guys, the backup team, the uh, – Control and doorman wore masks. We didn't wear SCBAs back then. We had them in big suitcases. They weighed like 300 pounds. They were steel and <laughs> had the big bug eyes and the big rubber hose. If you're a deer hunter, when you cut out the, the throat, it felt like that. It was just a rubber hose. It was crazy. And I screw it in. Anyway, we turned the corner with a second new engine, and there's, there's this two fours of fire out of a vacant uh, commercial building, like an old, I guess, a loading dock. So the guy, the, pep, the uh, chauffeur's guy, his name uh, Tom Paterisi, Pepsi was his nickname. He goes, Key to Hydrant. So the nozzleman goes to me. I'm the backup. He goes, key to hydrant. So I grab the stuff off the back. I key to hydrant. They go down a block. So now I'm trying to fumble things around. And all I hear is, start water. Oh, I'm not ready. So now I turn the hydrant on. The cap blows off. The hose isn't on. I turn it back off. I'm putting the cap back on. I finally get on. I turn the hydrant on. I run down the block. I go 100 yards, three, four lengths down. I go to grab the mask out of the box because now it's take the mask, right? They go, drop the mask, we have a burst length. So I drop the mask, falls on the ground, I run, we change the length out. So now we're moving in this thing on the first floor. And, the, and 
The nozzle's putting the fire. He goes, Mikey, come up here. So I, I squeeze past him. There's fire everywhere. We have a two and a half inch line. I have no mask. I've never done this before. We're moving in. They go, go up to the second floor, climb up these ply- there's some, I guess, plywood steps. We start climbing up. My leg goes through the floor and gets pinned. The truck officer kicks it. He goes, come on, kid, get up there. I'm like, okay. Some guy from five truck. So I'm up in this hole on the floor. And the whole second floor is going. So I'm trying to move a two and a half inch line, which if you've ever held one, it's extremely difficult just to move a couple of feet of it. So him and I, the truck guy and I, whoever he was, we're pushing this thing back and forth. Eventually they backed us out and they towel at it to death. But this is my first experience. Now I come out and I'm burping smoke for like two days. I'm home. A little burping smoke comes out of my mouth. I'm like, what is this? This wasn't a brochure. I, I didn't read this about burping smoke for a couple yeah. of days. And that was my first job. It was a couple, I was on a job a couple of months before we had it. We had minor car fires and rubbish and bum barrels in the city. Because the village at the time was like it is now. It's still very, you know, a happening neighborhood type of thing. It was a, a it still is a basically gay community. Uh, and they were cool people. Nobody ever bothered us. We had no problems with, with the, the people that lived there and stuff. And it was a little, you know, weekends were crowded and insane. But it was a... Decent area. They took care of the neighborhood stuff, and it was still to this day they take care of the area. Uh, but it was an unbelievable first experience. Like nothing went right. Everything went backwards. It's like this isn't supposed to work this way. <laughs> That's the part they didn't tell us. No, that everything will not go right. No, you do this, will always go wrong. Yeah, That's one of the things you learned early on, uh, especially lied. in the engine. Uh, oh god. So for each of you, you must have had some really seasoned senior guys and officers. Who were some of them that you really looked up to and why? I, I tell you why. In 246, they were uh, uh, my captain, Captain Patty Boylan. You know, he was the pretty much the first guy I, that I met and I worked with him. Uh, he used to walk into the firehouse in the happiest of moods. And, and I'm thinking every time he came in, he was like so, so happy to be in the firehouse. And I was thinking to myself, this guy must hate his family. You know, because he was smiling ear to ear every time he came in the firehouse. You know, later on in life, I got to know his family very well. And his family, is he has a wonderful family. He was happy to be into the firehouse. And as a boss, as a role model, model he really didn't sweat, you know, the small things, you know. Uh, but when it came time to do your job, you know, when it came time to go to fires, to, to operate in the street, on the highway, whatever, he wanted you to, you know, he wanted you to do your job, you know, and he demanded that. Uh, that was the captain. Now, he had been, you know, he was covered in the 82 engine. He had been through, you know, a lot. We had a, a lieutenant, Bobby Shop, who was very quiet, very laid back. He was a 46 engine in the late 60s and all through the 70s. Bobby, now I don't know this at the time because I don't I have no idea what 46 engine is. But he was, he was a great fire officer, but very, very quiet, very, very subdued. He had done his time. Now, another guy, Lieutenant uh, Patty Mulryan, I said, uh, Boylan sweated, you know, didn't sweat the small things. Patty Mulryan didn't sweat anything, you know? He didn't sweat anything. He was, he was actually in 27 too, the original uh, lot of 5'8", and he got promoted out of 27 too. So he's... You know, he's in, in, in Brighton Beach, and he he's just loving it. Came, but we did go to fires. So when he came time to go, he was a great fire officer and a great teacher. Wasn't a big drill guy, but he was a great teacher when you were out in the street, you know. Um, and you mentioned role models, and I just wanted to add a couple of guys. John McEnany, who wound up being a battalion commander in a 4-1. Uh, we, I worked with him early on. We worked on his side. Charlie Guzman, who, uh, you know, um, had 10 years in the job at the time. 
Um, these are all guys I looked up to when, you know, I could finally open my mouth because I didn't open my mouth for about, you know, it was the middle of the summer before I started talking to anybody, really. But these guys, they were great firemen. They were had time on the job. And we also worked on the side. You know, I, after six months you're off probation, you could work on the side. So where I was working, we, we had side job. Guys in the firehouse all worked together on the side. And we, it wound up being, I might be getting off topic here, but it got to the point where I was doing four nights a week in the firehouse and I had a guy doing my day tours. He was doing, he was doing my day tours. I'm not going to mention his name. He had been a medic in Vietnam. He had gotten caught on the roof at the Wolves Bombs fire and he wanted no part of fire ever again. And he was willing to do my days. I did his nights. We went and did, we, it was building instruction, the, what we were doing on the side. We were doing metal studs and sheetrock and roofing and all that stuff during the day. And the same, half of the same group of guys went back to the firehouse every night. So we, did, we were together all the time, you know. Weekends, if you weren't working or working overtime, and at Proby Pay, the BP-117 was a big deal. You could work overtime. That, that, that helped you out a lot. Because like I said before, starting salary is 19608 you know. Even back then, that wasn't a lot of money. You know, working on the side, big deal. And I learned a lot about leadership, and I learned a lot about building construction, doing the side jobs. The camaraderie that came with being with the same guys for almost the whole week was fantastic. If we had a fire, Pete Viola would say, hey, we're not working today, you know. He would go. He would always go. But if we had a job and we were out, you know, half of Coney Island was burning down, so there were a lot of nights like that. We'd get back 4 or 5 in the morning. He'd say, don't worry about it tomorrow. So I'd go home and see my wife or whatever it was, you know. But uh, role models, I had plenty of them in a slow company in Brooklyn, you know. And, and I, I thank them to this day for what they taught me. It was funny. You, you asked about role models, and I was thinking, thinking, thinking. And I went and looked at my wedding picture, you know, and they were all there. They're all there. And we all, you know, Nicky Marzelli, another guy from, he went to Ladder 175 and, you know, tragically he, um, he died. Not on the job, but off the job. But it was, that was a tragic situation. Vietnam vet, Marine, uh, one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. He got me into thinking about getting out of 246 and going, you know, somewhere else, putting a paper in. And then, well, you know, that's, you know, role models, that, those were the guys, you know. Yeah. Sorry about yeah, that. No, no, no. I, listen, I, listen. I it, drone. It's it's a lot of years. There's a lot of stories. We had the if you meant officers or firefighters, um, I, I would delineate the two because officers had a different view, right? Officers don't really speak with the guys the same way the guys speak with each other. So when I went to 18, I had a couple guys who were Vietnam vets. One guy was this guy Al Catani, who just passed away a couple years ago, and he was a crazy guy. And Bobby Lopez, they were kind of buddies. And we had a senior chauffeur, was one of my chauffeurs, this guy Dickie Wright. Again, he passed away many, many years ago. He had open heart surgery and got out of the job and then died a few years afterwards. Um, there's, there was a bunch of guys. But there's one guy, John Strandberg, we work with. He's a Staten Island guy. Um, he retired, again, many years ago also. He was very calm at a job. We had a job. He was just very calm, very quiet. He moved the line. And it was like, wow, he's, there's no yelling, screaming going on here. And it was like, uh, okay, this is good because some guys we had – a little bit boisterous. Most of the guys were very good. They were competent. They knew what they were doing. We, we put the fire out was the key. Get in, put it out as fast as you could. For the officers, I had a Captain Rothstein that I don't think anybody listening to this radio would remember him. He was out of hall most of his career. He was the captain. He sat in the rig, hit the siren with his foot. That's all he did. He did nothing else. In the fire, he took charge of everything. He, everything was, was controlled and regimented and 
fires went out. He's great. He never raised his voice uh, except for one time. We used to have a, back then the Stang, the multiversal. We had a small hose. The job had a small hose. It's a ten foot hose. It was called a bastard hose, and they were put out of service by the job. But he kept it because the hose worked. One day, a covering officer comes in, says, uh, "What's that doing on the rig?" Captain wants it. Take it off. Well, the captain wants to take it off. Okay, Lou, we take it off. We roll it up. In that night comes the captain. Oh, did the hose break? No, Cap, the lieutenant told us to take it off. Put it back on the rig. He went upstairs, yelled at him, never saw that guy again. So I learned a valuable lesson. Don't mess with someone else's company. You're visiting, don't touch anything, don't cause a problem. And that was a good lesson. And we also had Huey Lennon, the uh, father. His son was on a job. He's had some nephews and stuff. He's no 30 truck guy up in Harlem. And uh, he worked with us. He didn't sweat anything. Huey was like, we used to call him the Teflon lieutenant. No matter what happened, nothing stuck to him. And, but he was great at fires. We had a uh, fire. It was uh, Commissioner Hines' first day or second day as a fire commissioner. It's December. We catch. We get this odor of smoke, three, four blocks from quarters. So we go down against traffic on 6th Avenue. Stop. Famous last words. Huey goes, yeah, smells like rubbish in the rear. Stretch the line to the door anyway. So no one has their mask on. We just, you know, pull the line over and we're waiting. All of a sudden, here comes ladder nine, and they see the side street, and there was a guy there waving to them. So they make the left, you know, the way doing the rain dance. He was the guy that opened up the restaurant to clean up. Well, the restaurant was fully involved in the rear. And they go, bring the line. We have a job. We, we hump the line over the cars, over the parking means we go. We go stretching in. Heavy fire. Ends up going to like a third or fourth alarm. And we're backing out because... 24 engine was coming in from the other side, from the 6th Avenue side, and they're pushing the fire back over. So we had inch and three quarter. They had a two and a half inch line. So they pushed the fire over. So we kind of basically bailed out. And you, we prevented us from falling down a set of stairs that way. We never saw because the smoke was, and it was heat and we're no mass. We're crawling on the ground. We can't see anything. Somehow he saw it and we all went down the stairs. It wasn't for him. So his experience paid off. And I realized that having that experience and watching other things other than the firefighting. Because my friend Al, like I said, mentioned, he was the nozzleman. And uh, I think Freddie Shaw was the backup. I was the, I was the door. I forget who the control guy was. And uh, it was like, wow, he really knows what he's doing. We couldn't see a thing. And he's found these stairs and kind of pitched himself there. So they were early role models and a couple other guys I worked with over the years. And then when I went to Brooklyn, I had some other role models there that – which I, and. My cousin Mickey and my my dad, my cousin Johnny, obviously they were very, they seemed very competent at their positions. As I spoke with them over the years, at, you know, as I got on a job, now we're talking stuff. Um, but in Brooklyn, it was uh, I had Charlie McGrath was my captain in 157, yeah. and then uh, Chief Pritchard was on a couple of months back. Uh, he was a lieutenant. We met him. He was a bouncing lieutenant in 80. I guess it was 1981, and he comes to 18 Engine, and he's you know covering a vacation spot there. And we didn't know. We knew nothing about him. We again, we as much as my dad had cousins. Right. I really knew very little about different things in job. We didn't. Nobody talked about it the way it is now. So there's a fire around the corner from 132 truck one night in 280. He goes, "Hey guys, you want to go there?" We're like, "Yeah, let's go, Cat uh, Lou." He makes a phone call. Next thing we know, we're getting relocated to 280. Now I don't know where 280 uh-huh. is at the time. Yeah, I'm a couple years on job. We ride over there. We go. We pull up. He walks up to Chief. Hey Chief, 18 engine ready to go to work. He goes, "Oh, you guys assigned this additional engine." He goes, no, you know, relocate. He goes, go to your relocation. So we sat in 280 for three or four hours and had you know, a couple of runs and we went back. But he was that aggressive. I was like, wow, this guy is great. He got us relocated from the village to Brooklyn to go to a fire. I, that was great. And then we started to learn there's more involved than just, you know, we had a comfortable little world. Though. It, was, it was a great place. And we started seeing there's more going on here. Sure. So then, you know, um, you had on also Tommy Gardner. When I got to Brooklyn, um, I, I know I'm probably a little bit ahead of myself, but Tommy had a few years less than I did at the time. And he didn't know me at all. 
And one time I had done something, he goes, you know, Mike, can I talk to you about this? I said, yeah, Tom, I'm here to learn. I want to learn more, you know, more truck work, because I was in an engine for 12 years, and I hadn't done any engine work, uh, truck work, rather. I mean, a little bit here, a little bit there. And um, he was like, he talked to me, and he said, we, t- we do it this way. This is a better way to do it. I said, thank you, Tom. But he felt like almost afraid to talk to me, because I had some more time on on him. And I was like... Wow, he's giving me some respect that I'm not asking for, clearly. I, I want to learn. And I, as you go through the job and the fire service, you'll find it. You're going to find guys like that. They want to help. They don't want to be like, hey, I, I know more than you. This, No, I want to help you. And, and those guys like that, uh, um, there are others, of course. Um, uh, Captain Principio, obviously, was, was a great role model, how to be a good company officer mm-hmm. and a good fire officer. I mean, other, like I said, there's, there's numerous people. Bobby Boca was a lieutenant in uh, – and uh, 147? 150, he was a fireman in 47. Okay, right. Ten, right. Someone said he did the last scaling ladder rescue in the city. I don't know if that's true or not. Actually. But he was the calmest guy on the planet. I think, uh, yeah, I think I, re- I remember told him me that doing story. it. Yeah. But Lieutenant Boca was great. He would ride up. He'd be smoking a cigarette. You're like, yeah, take a take a drag. Yeah, a lot of 157 in Brooklyn. Yeah, 157. Yeah, 1075. Like that was it. Fire out four windows. Didn't didn't fluster him. Didn't fluster him. And that Dennis Driscoll was there. His dad, I think, was the captain rescue five one time. He was a lieutenant with us. He was an old one thirteen guy. It's a good house. Yeah. And Big Daddy was there. Jimmy Richards. I didn't work with him. He was out on medical leave. Had gotten blown up in a fire down on Rogers Avenue some a couple years earlier. So we still rehabbing from that. But uh, those guys were just fun guys, and they they took the job with a lighthearted attitude, but yet with a professionalism, experience. Like you know, this is, we have fun, but when it's time to go to work, we go to work. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that was a good one. place. That was a good house. Oh, 113, yeah. Uh, no, 130, well, all those houses in that part of Brooklyn. And from 1982 or 83 on, I, I put a paper in every year, you know, and there was always the same. It was 147, 157, 132. Oh, was that your paper? Oh, God. Never yeah, yeah. We'll no, no, no. I, I, you know, and it, the thing is, we were, like we were talking, you know, it's without, without a little juice, you ain't going anywhere. You know, learning about the different parts of Brooklyn and what 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 the kind of work they were doing. WNYF always helped because you get the runs and workers once a year, and stuff like that, and listening to the radio. But you you mentioned something before, uh, Mike, that you know you're on the line, you can't see nothing, you're moving in, and that's pretty much every fire. So when you're brand new, you got no experience, you know. A lot of times you're the backup, man. A lot of times, you know, when it was a five-man engine, you were the doorman. You know, the control was a special place. Nozzle's a special place. So as a new guy, you're on that line. That line is is your security. And you know there's a guy in front of you and a guy behind you. And until you know much, a couple of years, two, three years, you're just following that line. And eventually it lightens up and you're done good, you know. But, you know, you're, you really your, – your comfort level – came it rose slowly because you were on that line in between two good guys you know and you were safe as long as you were hanging on to that line you know as long as you were pushing that line in you know how long did did it take for each of you to feel comfortable as a firefighter uh boy you know you know there's the engine and there's the truck you mentioned before about fumbling with the hydrant you know, oh, it, after a couple, after two years, I was driving. They they didn't have chauffeur school; they had company qualified chauffeurs. So you know, I was driving. So there was new challenges all along. Comfortable. I remember my first fire driving. Uh, with they talk about fumbling with the hydrant. Mm-hmm. You know, good fire, Homecrest Avenue. I'm on a hydrant. I'm trying to. I'm fumbling with the thing, and you know, Captain Boylan's going, "Kev, give me water." You know, he can see his voice. Kev, give me water. You know, different roles. 
you feel comfortable in at different times, you know? As far as on the line, I, I, a couple of years, I would say, you know, year and a half, I felt comfortable driving. Um, boy, I don't know if I ever felt comfortable driving, but, you know, after a while, a couple, couple of things. I remember that first fire, I didn't get water. Second due chauffeur, Tony Amorosa, came down, and he helped me hook up. Now, Captain Boylan didn't know that I didn't hook up, but he, you know, I, I told him years later. But, you know, though you're doing different roles, even though you're in the engine, you're doing different things. And your confidence level, you know, is is not like it's not one thing. It, it's multifaceted, you know. And that's just the engine, let alone the truck, you know. Yeah, I think it's individual though. Like some people become like the more work you go to, the more comfortable you get. But you don't want younger guys becoming so like almost like like yeah, I got this. This isn't a big deal. Yeah, no. There's mm -hmm. things you haven't seen. You've seen you know ten, twelve good fires in the first two, three years, we'll say, and you're feeling confident about, it, and that's good. I think my comfort level for me was more of a, of a knowledge of what was going on around me. So I felt comfortable. Because was, oh, you're always concerned. As everyone else doing their job, are we doing, you know, and as you get more time on the job, you begin to get comfortable with the entire operation. For us, anyway, in the city. I mean, I, there's others, other departments have less manpower, less rigs responding. We always have a small army at some point that arrives. Um, but that's how it was for me. It, I got comfortable with what was going on, but every fire was like, okay, what's going to go on here? What are we looking for? And then you start doing research. Something reading, new research. every fire. Yeah, there's always something different. Right. You the same, it's like, you know, and your role. same circus, different clowns, or same clowns, different circus, whatever it is, but it's different. And your role does change because yeah. we, we went, to, I went to Showbiz School with a year on the job because we were the backup to, to Satellite One. Okay, you needed two. So we needed two always, showbiz always working. Two. And we did have company trained, but yeah. they wanted qualified showbiz whenever well, possible. Excuse me. So yeah, that's what their job <laughs> said. So I drove every now and again. It was, it was an interesting experience. In the village, the streets are, you know, you have to hold your breath yeah. going down a block with a truck. Yeah. So that got, you got, used to driving quickly because they wanted us all to drive to be competent because, again, the streets were small. Chinatown was in our battalion. And the streets there are barely wide enough for a car, much less a truck. So I think everyone comes at a different level. It depends on how they, who they are and how they are with fire. Thank you for that answer. Let's switch gears now. What prompted each of you to study for promotion? Well, if you don't mind, let's have to go back to when Mike was talking sure. about transferring. Sure. Like I said, I, I had a paper in there every year, uh, 82, 83, 84, nothing, nothing, nothing. 1984, I saw an order. And, you know, I told you before, Louis Sarpachillo was like, he went to 75 engine and he was thrilled. You know, uh, I had a friend of mine, Patty Murphy, was in 43 engine. That was one battalion at the time. There's only four houses, in, uh, only two houses in the whole battalion. They had an order in 84. Four probies went to 75. Four probies went to 33 truck. Now, I, I had been trying to get to a busy company for a few years. So that's when I changed tact. That's when I, I changed course. And I put in, I put in for all four companies in the 19th Battalion. And, you know, I'll never forget. I, now, these guys became my friends. But those four guys, um, eight guys, one house. Well, how can this happen? They're doing, you know, at the time I knew they were doing 6,000 runs a year, you know, all that stuff. I finally did transfer to the Bronx in, in 86. And I can't, I, I can't tell you the difference, uh, the, the, what's the word, the culture shock of, of that. Uh, going from an area, you know, predominantly two, three stories. That down Brighton Beach, we did have six-story H's, you know. But you go into this, into that building, and at the time the firehouse was on Jerome Avenue, and the neighborhood itself, this is the height of crack now, you know, uh, the neighborhood itself, 
was like a third world. It's like a third world country. And if you think about the buildings, you have an H-type building, six stories, four apartments each wing. You know, you got 12 apartments per floor. Uh, no, you got eight apartments per floor, six stories. You got 48 apartments in that building, 48 families, all right? You had five of those buildings, and a lot of them were vacant. You know, maybe 40% of the buildings were vacant at the time. But they had five of those buildings on a block. That's 250 families, and that's only one side of a block, you know? And all of these people, this, this hordes of people, were, were when they get to get to work or get to where they got to go, they all got to walk down to 183rd Street and Jerome Avenue and get on the train. And that's where we were. And it was, it was, um, it was a revelation, that neighborhood. Uh, and the amount of people, and the fact that, and the fact that you know, uh, pretty much in that neighborhood, we were outsiders. You know, we were running around a lot. We were doing a lot of good. Not everybody loved us. You know, that was my formative years going to that place. When I when I transferred there, I I, I was in with some of the best firemen that there ever will be on this earth. Uh, now I'm getting probably ahead of myself, but but the bosses, Ralph Tisa was in the truck. Brian McCarthy, God rest his soul, in the engine. Pete LaCastro in the engine. Kevin O'Keefe in the engine. All guys that had seen so much fire duty. Firemen. Great, great firemen. Now, I had, I had five years on the job when I went there. So, you know, I knew the engine. I knew what the engine does. I know how to stretch a line. I know how to put a fire out. You know, but this was a whole new thing. This was, this was, dealing, with, this was dealing with a lot of other outside pressures. You know, when we worked there, we, we pretty much endured the neighborhood. They, I don't know if you, you ever heard the story about 75 engine. 75 engine always had the American flag flying off the back of the rig. And there was a reason for that because that was the only American flag flying in the whole neighborhood. There was lots of other flags, but we carried the United States of America into that neighborhood. It's not literally, but we were doing our job, but we're also, you know, we're showing that this is, this is America. This is what we do. You know, and this at the same time where our cars are getting broken into all the time. Um, we got rats in the firehouse. We got, uh, you know, we're finding all kinds of horrible things that, you know, the average person would think horrible. Dead body, you know, dead murders, violence, uh, kids, you know, being slapped around. You're, you're, there was one supermarket um, associated. It was across the street right by the train station. So I mentioned all those families, you know, 500 on each block. So you might have had 4,000 families within walking distance of the supermarket, right? Now, we didn't, you would never get the chicken in the place, but this place served all these families. Now, there was no difference between today and shoplifting and crackheads back then, stealing, you know? So, so part, of the, part of the culture shock was, I remember we had the door open. It's the, it's, it's the springtime. Uh, I'm on watch, and they caught somebody stealing across the street. Uh, and they were good friends with Jack Rafferty, another wonderful senior guy in 33 truck. Jack used to always shop there. And they, they catch a guy, and, and what they would do is they couldn't call the cops. Cops weren't going to come. They would stretch, take this guy out, stretch his arm out, and they'd break his arm with a baseball bat in broad daylight, right on the street, people getting off the subway. I heard this guy screaming. Right. And I, I look around and they, they're hitting him for the third time, breaking his arm. Right. They drop him. They go back in the store. 
I get up and go to help. And Jack goes, Kevin, get back in here. Get back in here. I said, Jack. He goes, no, no. Listen, you want to have a supermarket on this block. This is how it's going to survive. These are things that went on back then to kind of keep the equilibrium, keep, uh, you know, um, keep the peace, keep people to be able to flourish and stuff like that. Things today that you would think would be horrible if they had a YouTube video of a guy getting his arm broken. But because that guy got his arm broken, he, number one, he didn't steal anymore. All the crackheads in the neighborhood didn't steal, didn't go into that store. And all those three or 4,000 families were able to go get the, the stuff they needed to survive, you know? You know, it, this was the, uh, the culture shock that I went through going there. Our cars, right? You always left your car open, unlocked. You, we, nobody had radios. I had a radio that came out of my van, detached. Everything had, had already been stolen out of all the cars. If you locked your car, you had nothing to steal. They'd break into your car to find out you had nothing to steal, so everybody left their cars open, you know? I had a lot of hookers on Jerome Avenue. I had a van with this big mirror. And every time I got off, uh, off a tour, my mirror would always be pushed around because the hookers were always doing their makeup in my mirror, you know? So this was like a show. We would sit outside and we would look at a live show. We had so much fun in that firehouse with some of the greatest firemen uh, around. Uh, and, but it was uh, 24 hours went like four hours. You know, there was always something going on. You were always running. The, the firehouse was doing 14,000 runs a year between the battalion, the engine, and the truck. And, you know, the, if, you got, if you got time to sit down outside, there was, a, there was a show going on outside. I was driving home one time in my van. Uh, my, no, a friend of yours, too, uh, Jay. Tony Pascucci, right? He used to work a uh, side job, Yellow Freight, up in uh, upstate New York by 84. So his car, he had every hazmat decal that you could have on his car, you know, and they still broke into it. They had, you know, uh, you know, uh, right down the line, uh, you know, every good lieutenant, uh, you know, um, explosives, radioactive, poisons, corrosives. He had it. The whole car was covered with these things. And he was driving up the throughway to, you know, to the home. And a cop, a cop stopped him a few times. But then once he told him, you know, they, you know they said, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was so much fun. Coming home one night, I, I'm driving, getting my van, doors open, of course, fix the mirror. I'm driving down Jerome Avenue, heading towards the Cross Bronx, and I look in my, my mirror, there's, there's a guy waking up in my back of my van, you know? He, he went in, he went to sleep, and I was like, you know, and you had to, and Tony taught me a, a lesson too, you know, you gotta give a rat a way out. Whenever you had confrontations with people, you always had to give a rat a way out. So I, I just looked at the guy. I said, hey, dude, what are you doing? He goes, oh, man, I'm waking up. And I go, okay, listen, uh, you got to get out, all right? He goes, oh, yeah, no problem, no problem. So I let him out. He goes, oh, where am I? I go, you're on 180th Street. All right, no problem. So, you know, it was just a completely, you know, you, we're talking about learning the job. We're talking about learning, um, you know, different, uh, different positions, different uh, types of fires. But we also had to get used to different types of neighborhoods. Amazing, amazing experience. We had two companies, uh, we had two houses in the 4359, 75 and 33. At that time, you only did details, you know, in between, your, in your battalion. So wait, you studied so you can keep your car inside quarters so nobody would sleep in the back no, of the No, no, the only guy, oh, that, right. the only guy that was... kept his car in quarters was the chief. Oh, those guys. And we had a lot of guys, we had a lot of guys who came to work overtime, officers. 
that, you know, worked like 66 engine and stuff like that. And they'd, they'd drive up in these new, nice cars <laughs> and they would say like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. I can't park here. So, you know, they'd have to go. I don't know what they did. I don't know if they went up to Riverdale and took the train down, you know, and the, but it was, you could not park a decent vehicle outside. Things were always getting, things were always being sold, stolen items, stolen goods, stuff like that. There were good deals. I made some stuff. Made some yeah. Stuff. No, no. It was uh, completely, you know, even though, like I was saying, you learn all your positions, but then you got to get used to the, the nuances of dealing with people, of dealing with, um, you know, crises. And dealing with a different way of life, actually, sure. you know. So, learning the street is part of a firefighter's yeah, responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and my for, that was my formative experience in the fire department for sure, without a doubt. Anyway, so why did you study for lieutenant? Well, you know, <laughs> back to the question. Well, you know, that's right. Yeah. See, so yeah, that's it. See, my I ADD, was paying attention. My ADD is much worse than yours. Oh God, I'm terrible. Um, no, I started studying because you know, in the Navy. In the Navy, you – I started studying when I was in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah, because the guys I respected, they were studying. You know, guys I worked with on the side and, and in the firehouse, they were studying. And in the Navy, promotion was something that you were, you know, in, in, ingrained with. You you know, you're – you know, you're – you got to be E3, E1, E2, E3. You got to make certain practicals to do that. So that was something – so, you know, I said, okay, let me uh, let me study. Uh, let me learn the job. I learned a lot of things – on paper that were in my mind and they did not make sense. They did not make sense until I went up there and we started doing them, you know? And, and training up there wasn't so much formal as it was you were producing. You were going out a million times. Uh, you were seeing certain, a lot of things that, and these were the best officers. They would tell you, you know, look at the fire escape. I mean, Chief Vanella used to stop you all the time. You know, how many apartments you you know, we'd be stretching. No, no, no. Stop, stop. How, you know, how many how many apartments here? What are you looking at? You know, you know, front fire escape, you know, um, railroad flats, whatever it was, you know, those were, were important things. Not that it was formal, not that it was written in the books. And speaking of the books, when we started studying, there was no, uh, what do you call it? Where, where do they get the books now? The, uh, the, the records um, down headquarters, you can get the books, you know. They had a guy called Morris Heidewitt called the fire buff and you had to track this guy down and buy a set of books from him and he didn't always have them and when you got the books you got like a whole ream of department orders that you had to go cut out and update your books you know i think uh scotch tape over the old with the new yes yes you you had to update your books it was and and the art of studying like today these guys have it on uh they have it on apps they have it on ipads they have it you know but morris heidewitt the fire buff you had to go and search him out and buy a set of books from him and then update them yourselves i think around 83 or 84 fire tech started selling books because i know that's my first real I, i had a set from him but I, I, I bought a set from FireTech, and uh, you know, FireTech was um, that was the gateway to, to promotion, really, and it was fun. You know, yeah. it was like an extension. It was a boys' night out uh, in Brooklyn, at least. It was a boys' night out. You go to FireTech, you do you know, you do your questions, do you do your reading, of course, and then you guys went out and hung out for the rest of the night. So it was a social thing, and it was a, a learning thing. But when it was cemented in my head is when we actually took those things that were written down. And then started to do them, started to see them in buildings, you know. It, it was, uh, and when that happened, it, something clicked. 
something clicked in your head, oil burner, this, you know, or whatever it is you were doing, you realized that's, you read, you read something last year that you're doing today. And now, instead of being that guy on the hand line between the nozzle man and the control man, who I'm so happy that we saw at the, the fire went out and we saw a light at the end of the tunnel. Now you're starting to, you know, you're starting to grow and you're starting to understand why you do things. And boy, that was like, uh, it was like, it was like an epiphany. Uh, that was uh, that was nutritious to use a word. It was nutritious <laughs> to put the two together, and you kind of fed off of that. And that was the, that was the beginning. You know, that was that was unbelievable. So, yeah, I never realized it in that light before. I just cheated. But uh, <laughs> had I known all these things, yeah, well, no, well, I, that's I, another thing. The eighty-six well, test. Okay. That's another thing. Plus, so, plus you're competing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But you, plus you're competing against eleven thousand guys who completed, competed against 40,000 guys to get the job in the first place. Mm. So the level of, you know, the level of competition was unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and, and I tell you what, the city of New York has benefited, I mean, to the tune of billions of dollars by guys doing their own studying, by learning the job on their own and applying those lessons, you know, um, there are a lot of a lot of places that you know you don't go in and take such a difficult exam without, without any kind of like formal training or or, or job based that's paid for by your job to train you to do something. You know, only in the New York City Fire Department that is the toughest uh, exam. I, I I would say I didn't you know I went to co- I didn't do well in college for six months, but I would say that's got to be a, a, the toughest thing to do, even harder than going to college. You know. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.